0: Thank you for downloading the following message from the Pickerington Church of Christ. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you walk with the Lord. For more information or to find additional resources, locate us on the web at pickeringtonchurch.org. Enjoy the message. So I asked you to turn to Matthew chapter 1. And yes, I'm going to read it. How many of you start in verse 18 in Matthew chapter 1 when you do your Bible reading? Any, anybody want to confess? Or maybe you just confess that whenever you hit the genealogies in the Bible, you just sort of get down to the end and keep going, right? Genesis chapter 5 and some other places like Numbers where you just sort of read. We're going to read it. Let's see if you can survive with me, okay? Let's see if I can survive some of these names. That's really what we're going to wonder about. Matthew says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed the father of Jesse. Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam the father of Abijah. And Abijah the father of Asaph. Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat the father of Joram. Joram the father of Uzziah. Uzziah the father of Jotham. Jotham the father of Ahaz. Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abuid, and Abuid the father of Elakim, and Eliakim, pardon me, the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eluid, and Eluid the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Methan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were fourteen generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon, to the the Christ, pardon me, 14 generations. Did you make it? It didn't take too long, did it? You might be able to do it next time. You know what's funny is by the end of 2020, over 100 million people will have participated in an at-home DNA test. It's like $59 with 23andMe or Ancestry.com or something like that. A hundred million people by the end of next year are going to you know, swab their cheek or spit in some little vial. I think it is. I've never done it. Has anybody done that yet in here? Okay. Some of you have done that, right? And you send it away and it comes back with a report. And this is becoming quickly one of the most you know, interesting hobbies of American people today. As I said, over 100 million people are going to do it by the end of 2020 is what they're saying. And the question really is that they're trying to figure out is what makes taking these tests so compelling. So I can ask maybe some of you later, you know, what what makes taking these ancestry tests, these DNA tests, so interesting to us, so compelling to us? And the answer really that they're finding is this idea of connection, that people are really drawn to knowing where they come from and who they come from. And sometimes it can be pretty exciting, like, you know, I'm the 17th cousin of Woodrow Wilson, and you have some sort of connection to that, or maybe some war hero or some, you know, wealthy businessman. You start looking up if you're, you know, connected to that inheritance maybe, right? And sometimes it can be not so exciting, like you learn, well, maybe your great-great-great-great-grandfather changed your last name by one word so he didn't have to pay taxes or something like that, you know? And you, you can learn some things about your family, What has become a hobby for us was essential for people in Jesus' day. They did not need Ancestry.com. They were very good at keeping their records. And how, really, the reason they did this is because it determined where they got to in their life. You know, for the Hebrew people, their life was oftentimes defined by the lineage that they came from. Whether it was the tribe that they came from that determined the work that they could do, or just the prominence they had in their society, or the place of the access they had to opportunities, it was oftentimes determined because of the lineage or their ancestry. And so, when we begin, as we're starting again this week, talking about fixing our eyes on Jesus, I want us to actually start with his ancestry, his lineage, his family tree. This is where Matthew begins when he wants us to take a look at Jesus consider him seriously, and wonder if we should commit our lives to him, he doesn't start with the very first story about Jesus. He starts with the people who brought us Jesus. Because there's something in there. There's something for us to draw out from that. Let me give you a few this morning. The first thing that I want you to get about this lineage of Jesus, some lessons that we can learn because it's here, is this. First of all, Jesus, we learn, is real. Is real. An actual human. You know, when you, whether it's you watch a Disney movie or read a story or, you know, whatever a fairy tale may be, you know, fairy tales usually start with things like once upon a time or somewhere in a galaxy far, far away. You know, stories like that where it's we know it's made up, we know it's a fairy tale, but it kind of leads us to a place where we can maybe dream about what life might be like. Here, Matthew does the opposite of that. He's not getting ready to tell us some fairy tale. He's not writing a novel about a heroic being who is perfect in every way and really just wants to elicit your mind and your heart. He's actually doing something much different. What he's saying in in his opener here is, what I'm about to tell you, the guy I'm about to tell you about is a real person, and it actually happened. You can go check the records. You can ask You can look at this. This list right here that Matthew recorded for us was like vetting that Jesus Christ was a real person, a real being that lived. He existed in time and in space, and that's really what he's trying to tell us. And so we learn here this, that Jesus, first of all, was a real person. He was flesh and blood. He had a mother and a father. He was born into the world. He had family who had lived for generation after generation. Jesus, born a baby, raised a child into adulthood, existed in a time and a space that made him very much like us. Learning about him is at first a lot like learning about, learning about a historical figure like George Washington, where you learn about where they're from and what experiences they had and what accomplishments they did. Matthew wants us to learn about Jesus first as a person because he wants us to know he was real. So he's not just a real person, but this list also tells us that Jesus is a real king. This is one of the most intriguing facts that you can extract from these genealogies. You see, lineage for the Hebrews was crucial, as I mentioned. Like, for instance, you couldn't be a priest unless you came from the tribe of Levi. You had to be out of that lineage to be able to do that job. Well, the most important one was the throne of God's people. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promised to David that his bloodline would be the throne. They would have the throne forever, the people of Israel, God's people. He said, I promise you, the throne will not leave your bloodline. 2 Samuel chapter 7, that a blood descendant would sit on his throne forever. Well, the kingly line was passed through Solomon. And then down the line, one of Solomon's sons decided to sin so bad that God came and actually said to him that his descendant would never sit on a throne again, Jeremiah 22, verse 3. So if you listen to that, we've got kind of a dilemma here. We've got a problem. God promised to David that a blood relative of his would sit on his throne forever, and then generations later, there was one of the kings who had sinned so bad that he said, listen, your lineage, your line will never, ever sit on the throne. We'll enter into the story Luke. And if you look in Luke's narrative, Luke has a genealogy of Jesus Well, as well. And if you get into this, you'll have people bring up this up to you that the, they're different. If you look at Matthew's, it traces a little bit different line than Luke's does. And the explanation is pretty simple, that Matthew is actually tracing the lineage through Joseph. Jesus' earthly father, because he's writing to Jews who would want to know if Jesus has the father to son right to be the king. That's how they did it for the Hebrews. Now, Luke gives us Mary's line. And in Mary's line, we learn that Jesus is a blood relative of David. But there's one difference. If you go back to David, both Joseph and Mary came from David, but Joseph came down the line of Solomon, meaning the throne would come through him. To Jesus, But Mary came from Nathan, not Saul, meaning he, she has the blood of David. And so we see this, that Jesus is both a blood relative of David, but also in the line from Solomon. He had the blood right from Mary, the legal right from Joseph, but he didn't have the blood curse that was given through the line of Solomon because he was born of Mary and adopted by Joseph. Amazing, isn't it? That God brought this man to this point. He was a real person who was in line to be a real king. The second thing I want you to know about this, that we learn about Jesus is this. Jesus is central. He's central. Now this is subtle, but stay with me. At this point in history, when, when this story is happening, you have powerful nations and powerful people running the world. They seem to be running the whole world. And Israel is insignificant. It's a backwoods nobody nation that nobody's paying attention to. Even further, Mary and Joseph are insignificant in the nation of Israel, which is insignificant. They're nobodies, meaning nobody is paying attention to this line or this lineage. Nobody cares about it at all. But here's what we learn and what Matthew is reminding us, that God made a promise to Abraham That through Abraham, he would bring salvation to the whole world and bless the world. And God is guiding all of these things in the world for this purpose to happen. Let me give you a quick example. Mary and Joseph, it's a popular part of the story. It comes up around Christmas time, oftentimes, that they had to travel back to Bethlehem. Remember that in their story? And they... Jesus was born in a manger, and it's a pretty popular part of the story. But if you don't remember, um, Rome at that time, the world power was going to tax everybody. And so they had to travel home to register to be able to pay the tax from the family that Joseph came from. And so they were traveling back to Bethlehem. And Luke explains that really they were traveling back to Bethlehem to fulfill the prophecy from long ago that the Savior would come from a small town called Bethlehem. So, get this. Why would God not just go to Joseph and say, Hey, Joseph, you know, he appears to me in an angel. I, I need you to head back to Bethlehem for about, you know, two to four days max, maybe have this baby there because I got a prophecy, I got to make sure it happens. God doesn't do that with Joseph. Look what God does to demonstrate that God moves nations like chess pieces, He taxes the whole world to move two people 90 miles. Isn't that crazy? That to get Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem, God works through Rome to do this. And here's the encouragement for you that I wanted you to not miss. You see, maybe you're a person that watches the news or you're online and I don't know how you would escape the news right now. You can watch the news and maybe you can start to feel a little bit anxious, a little bit nervous. You know, Russians are hacking elections, and China's controlling trade, and North Korea and Iran, maybe night dealing with nuclear. And now we got Ukraine in the mix, right? I don't even know where Ukraine is, and they're a world power making things happen, I guess, or something. And when you watch all this, I know for my experience, being an American, sometimes you can feel this nudge or this pull for us to maintain or regain sort of this position of world power. But I want to tell you this. If we ever do, it is for the purpose of what God is doing alone. Okay? You see, the main story of the entire world always revolves around what God is doing in the kingdom of Jesus. We are so distracted by people and nations we think that are the most powerful thing in the world. Whatever is happening in the world is revolving around What God is trying to do and going to do in the kingdom of Jesus. Jesus is central in this story. Number three, Jesus is real. He's central. Jesus is for everyone. Two strange things occur in this genealogy. If you don't know about genealogies, you might miss this, but two things happen that are weird. The first thing that happens that's weird is women are included. Did you notice that? Four of the mothers of Jesus are included in this genealogy, and that never happened. Uh, They just didn't include women in the story. They just kept it down the male line. The second thing is that there are embarrassing elements to the story of Jesus that are included. You see, when people were writing their lineage and keeping their ancestry, they oftentimes would scrub the details of what was ugly out of it to make sure they just kept what was nice and pretty and good in it so they could prove themselves to be impressive. Well, it's reminding me of what I read on ancestry.com in their privacy statement. Listen to this, you'll love it. In their privacy and user agreement statement, they say this You may discover unexpected facts about yourself or your family when using our service. Once discoveries are made, we can't undo them. <laughs> That's probably why I'm staying away from those uh, services right now, actually. I don't want to anymore. But if you read through the, if you were paying attention when I was reading through the, the story, There might have been some names that popped up to you they're like whoa that's weird that's included like Tamar or Rahab remember that name Ruth David is uh, in mentioned in there but something is attached to David's name you see here's what he's showing you the genealogy of Jesus first includes outsiders racial outsiders cultural outsiders gender outsiders women people from a different race people from a different culture all of these people rahab ruth the mothers of jesus all of these people would have been excluded by the law of god from the presence of god and yet they're in the story of jesus we see outsiders we see dysfunctional there's really dysfunctional situations listen to me Uh, because this is a g-rated audience um just know this, Judah and Tamar are in this story. You wouldn't have wanted to have been at Thanksgiving with them, okay? It would have been super weird. Just go back and read Genesis, and you'll see the story. It would have been weird. Dysfunctional at best is the best way to describe that. So you have outsiders, you have dysfunctional, you have failures. You have life failures, you have moral failures. Even the most successful person on this list, I would argue, would be King David. What he led these people to, the nation of Israel, the prominence and wealth and world power that David was, this guy is remembered forever. Listen how David is described um, in verse 6. David was the father of Solomon, comma, by the wife of Uriah. Now, why didn't Matthew say by Bathsheba? Why did he say specifically David, father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah? What's he trying to do? he's reminding you the story that David took the wife of not just a guy but one of his mighty men meaning one of about 40 men that defended David's life his whole life he was like this close confidant of David that trusted servant of David and David stole his wife then had him killed you see what he's saying here this list is full of outsiders of dysfunctional people of failures and there is something to this it's written this way on purpose It's the loudest message of Jesus' life that it's not, quote, good people are in and bad people are out. That's not what Christianity is. It's everyone needs him. This genealogy is no different. It tells us who Jesus came from because it's telling us who Jesus came for. Who he came from tells us who he came for. You fit in the family of God. You fit in the tree of Jesus. No matter where you've come from, no matter what you've done, no matter how bad you've messed up, no matter how little you think you have to offer, this list is a verification that all of us belong in the family tree of Jesus Christ. Because this list is full of people who have made a mess of their lives. And Jesus is for everyone. And that gets us to the final point in this. Jesus is for everyone because Jesus is exactly what we need. Matthew does something really special in this genealogy. It, it was a common practice. You would skip some generations just to hit the highlights of names so that people would know as they were covering a long span of time um, exactly where you came from. And Matthew does that in here. He skips a few generations. But if you go down to verse 17, he doesn't just skip generations because he's trying to save some time. He does something on purpose that he wants you to see. Verse 17, it says, So all the generations from Abraham, to David are 14. From David to Babylon, 14. From Babylon till Jesus, 14. Now there's something important about this. 14. Three sets of 14. Matthew is doing something on purpose. 14 is two sevens, right? Seven is the biblical number of completion and perfection that shows up over and over. God rested on the seventh day. Creation was complete. On the seventh year, uh, every every seventh year, Israel was supposed to let their land lie fallow and not till it and not use it so that the land would be restored to its nutrients and its strength. And then in Leviticus chapter 25, we learn about the seventh, seventh year. It was called the year of Jubilee. And on the 49th year, every 49 years, the seventh, seven Every single debt in the nation was forgiven, and every slave was set free. Can you imagine for a moment what that day would be like? Some of you are like, please, (laughs) I support Israel now, huh? The seventh seven. All of a sudden, every single debt is back to zero. Every single slave is set free. Here's what Matthew is trying to show you. Three sets of 14 is six sevens. Leading all the way up to Jesus. Jesus is the true seventh seven. He is the real year of Jubilee. That's really what Matthew's trying to tell you. You see, in Jesus, really, all debts are forgiven and all slaves are set free. Can you just seriously imagine the experience of the nation of Israel when the year of Jubilee would hit? They'd be counting down, right? They'd have like a countdown clock. They'd be waiting for that moment. Can you imagine the relief that they would feel, the joy they would feel, the celebration that would ensue, the kind of reunions, you know, slaves were held and then they would come back and meet their family again. The rediscovery of all the goods that were given back to people. Jesus is the greater and perfect year of jubilee that we're looking for. That's why Matthew starts with the genealogy to tell you, hey, listen, this guy's real, I promise. He's the real deal. He's the real person, real king. The world revolves around him being born. He is for everyone. Nobody's excluded from this tree, this family tree. And Matthew starts right here saying, He's the thing you've been looking for. He is the true year of Jubilee. All of us are laboring and working and grinding and trying to make things right and make things good in our life. And Jesus shows up in Matthew chapter 11 and he says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you... Do you know what that word is? Sabbath. Year of Jubilee. You see... You might achieve success in this life. You might marry the right person. You might make enough money. You may take all the fancy trips. You might have perfect children. You might build a house that's unbelievable. Your life might achieve Pinterest perfection. And you'll know deep down in that little secret part, something's still missing. Something's not right. Isn't it crazy how we get all the things lined up and then we go, but tomorrow, but wait. Wait but one more project, but one more thing, but one more dollar to earn, but one more possession to acquire. Jesus said, come to me, you who are laboring, you who are burdened down, I'll give you rest. Jesus frees us from the fatigue that we have and the load that we carry because he grants us divine forgiveness and acceptance. You see, with Jesus, you walk into the house, you take off your shoes, you take a deep breath, you sit on the couch, and you look over, and everything's ready. And everybody's there, and everybody's glad. In Jesus Christ is the year of Jubilee, the final rest that we've been looking for. And Matthew says, if you're going to start inquiring about Jesus, you've got to start on the right foot. You've got to know who he is, where he came from, because in that you know you belong, and he's got exactly what you need. He's here for you. I hope you find him. Let's stand and sing this song together. If you have a need, won't you come?